Chapter 16 of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter 16 On the Mount and in the Valley. It was Ruth's own letter of warning reaching him at a late hour on Saturday, having been sent after him from various post offices where he had left addresses, that finally brought him home on the Sunday Express instead of stopping off at Shoreham and waiting for the midnight train as he had planned. A few hours, more or less, might not make any difference, but then possibly it might, and being a business man accustomed to weighing with scales that were turned sometimes by very slight causes, he resolved to postpone his business at Shoreham and go home at once. On the journey he had been more or less annoyed, Several political discussions with other Sunday travelers had ruffled him considerably. Then he had been obliged to listen to and explain away a very much distorted edition of the story connected with the Shenandoah and its change of owners. Very wild, and what he considered very silly, reports about his having changed his political basis came to his ears, and he was obliged to refuse congratulations from one side and smoothed the feelings of a ruffled constituent on the other. Altogether, when he stepped from the platform of the train at his own station, he was in the mood to wish that he had not been such a fool as to cater to his wife's whims, and so make all this talk about the Shenandoah, and to wish especially that he had never heard of such an organization as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Imagine him, then, walking rapidly uptown, making an effort to throw off his ill-humor and be ready to greet his family graciously, confronted by those flaming letters on the lamp-posts, the bulletin-boards, and every conspicuous place possible, Gospel Temperance Meeting at Burnham Hall, time three o'clock sharp, all come. They even have my name dragged in because I happen to own the building. I'll have that hall named something the first thing I do tomorrow muttered the irate man, and then he rubbed his eyes and shaded them from the glare of the afternoon sunlight and looked again. Those large letters, could he believe his eyes or his senses? Mrs. Judge Burnham will preside. It was hard on him, really. I will not have you entirely unsympathetic with him. If you do not try to understand the people who are of another world than yours, to, in short, put yourselves in their places occasionally, how do you expect to be other than narrow and cold in your charities? This was entirely contrary to all his preconceived ideas of propriety, as well as utterly out of line with his sympathies. It was also very unlike Ruth. No one understood that better than she did herself. She, as you know, had been through a conflict on account of it. She had taken up the work as a duty, a cross from which she shrank her husband, having neither words in his vocabulary, could not be expected to understand how it was possible for this sentence to refer to his wife. Yet what other Mrs. Judge Burnham was there in the city, or in the world for that matter? This mystery must be looked into without delay. He drew out his watch. It was now fifteen minutes past three, and that odious Burnham Hall was but four blocks away. He must go and see for himself and this was what had given Mrs. Stuart Bacon a chance to nudge her companion's elbow and smile her surprise and approval when the great man entered the hall. He went forward the moment the closing hymn was sung, 
with a smile of greeting on his face and a hand held out to Ruth. You did not expect me in your audience, I fancy? Hardly, said Ruth, since I thought you still hundreds of miles away. But you do not need to hear me say I am glad, though the surprise for a moment nearly took my breath away. She seemed not in the least embarrassed, and was giving only half attention to him, her eyes meantime following the movements of a roughly dressed young man, who appeared to hesitate in doubt just what to do. He advanced a few steps, then turned and stood irresolute. Just as Judge Burnham had possessed himself of his wife's heavy fur-lined cloak and had said, You would do well to wait until you reach purer air before you don this, she turned abruptly from him, made a quick dash forward, and laid her hand on the frayed coat sleeve of the young man. May I speak just a word with you? he heard her ask, and then he stood and waited, with what grace he could, while the voice dropped too low for even his strained ears. And he could only watch. The young man's eyes were bent on the floor, but his face was working under the spell of some powerful emotion. He even put up his hand and furtively brushed away a starting tear as Ruth talked and her husband chafed. What an insufferable piece of folly it all seemed to him. His wife standing there in eager, low-toned speech with an uncouth fellow, smelling of tobacco and cheap whiskey, actually keeping her light hold on his arm with that shapely hand of hers. More than that, at some response of the fellow's, given with apparent energy and a lifting of his eyes, a light such as even he had never seen before, broke over the face, whose every expression he thought he knew, and then the ungloved hand met that hard, red one in a firm and evidently cordial grasp. It was but a few minutes, though it seemed almost hours to the waiting husband. Then she turned to him again, the peculiar light still in her eyes. I am ready now, she said, and they went down the stairs with the noisy crowd, and had walked nearly the length of a block before Judge Burnham broke the silence. It occurs to me that this is an entirely new departure. Very, said Ruth gently. I never did such a thing before in my life. I did not imagine that I possibly could. Even now she was preoccupied. She was hardly giving a thought to the one to whom she was speaking, or to the probable effect of the whole scene on his nerves. The simple truth was, she had just been brought face to face with a new and solemn joy, which is unlike any other joy to be experienced this side of heaven, which is understood only by those who have experienced it, and which can no more be described than one can describe the air we breathe, or the heaven to which we are going. She had been permitted of the Lord to speak such words as had moved the soul of a young man, a young man who was in peril, whose widowed mother was even now mourning for him as one lost to her and to God. He had been moved more than merely emotionally. That tremendous potentate that rules destinies, the human will, had spoken. I will do it, the young man had said, and the tone and the look that accompanied the words, and above all the answering witness of her own soul, made her sure that the decision which had to do with time and eternity had been made. And she had been the instrument. It was the first time in her life that she had ever been so distinctly chosen and used. Was this a time for wondering what a man who belonged outside the camp would have to say to her, even though that man was her husband? There were humiliations enough ahead, 
but this was her moment of exaltation. Her manner irritated Judge Burnham. How could it be otherwise? He did not understand it. Was she trying to show him how utterly indifferent she was to his wishes? We should have agreed perfectly in that opinion, he said with marked significance. I confess I had not the least idea that you could possibly do anything of the sort. Is it a proper time to ask how you came to make such an unpleasant discovery? As what? she asked gently, but with infinite stupidity. She had not been following him enough to understand him. She was thinking what an evening it would be to that boy's mother when she heard the news. As that you were endowed with the peculiar qualities which made it possible for a woman to step onto a public platform and harangue an audience of coarse men and low-bred women. Certainly these words were not easily misunderstood. Ruth flushed under them, but still her voice was gentle, unusually so. I did not harangue them, I think. I was only talking to them about the power of Jesus Christ to save, and I felt so keenly that they needed saving as to forget all other considerations. What do you think of that? he asked almost fiercely. They were passing one of those odious posts with its flaming letters. They looked as much as a foot in length to Ruth as her eye caught them now. I do not like it at all, she said hastily. I do not understand why they did it. At first I was really angry, but I do not mind it so much now. I am sorry to hear it. Will it impress you in any degree if I tell you that I mind it very much indeed? It was the first greeting which I received on my arrival, and if I had caught the fellow putting one of them up, I should have kicked him into the road. I know why they did it. They like to have your name bandied about the town, as it will be tonight, in the mouth of every low saloon-keeper, and the drunken habitués of his house. It adds to their importance to know that they have done something which will set the vulgar world agape. Anything for notoriety is their motto. The flush had died away from Ruth's face. She was growing very pale. This was a rapid descent from the mount whereon she had been standing. Only a moment before she had felt as though earth and its commonplaces could not touch her again, because she had been permitted for a moment to stand face to face with Jesus Christ. Yet here was the keen, cruel world at her very elbow. They had been walking rapidly. Unconsciously, Judge Burnham had quickened his pace with every angry word he spoke, and by this time they had reached their own door. He applied his night latch, held open the door with his accustomed courtesy for his wife, then closing it quickly, stooped and kissed her, and held her with his arm while he spoke. Ruth, I am angry. I don't think I was ever more so. It seems to me I have been unfairly treated, as if you must understand me better than this afternoon scene would indicate. But I have been long away, and have missed you sorely. I have been looking forward all day to the pleasure of meeting you. It was hard on a man to have to meet you where and as I did but I do you justice even now in my indignation. I give you credit for not being of the same spirit with this notoriety-loving crowd, though you have somehow fallen among them. I know the power of religious fanaticism. I have studied it more or less as I came in contact with it in the line of my profession. I even know that it has been carried to such excess before now that the doors of lunatic asylums have had to close on its victims. I trust I may have strength of mind enough to shield you from great harm. 
you will bear me witness that I have not often laid commands on you of any sort, that in theory and practice I believe in the utmost freedom of individual will between husband and wife that is compatible with true dignity. But you have really forced me, unintentionally, I fully believe, but none the less really, to say to you that it is something more than my request, much more indeed, that you should never enter the doors of such a place again as that in which I found you this afternoon. Now let me beg that you will make a complete change of dress, both for your sake and mine. Let us rid of any reminder of the offensive scene. Positively, Ruth, even the lace on your sleeve smells of bad tobacco. Mrs. Burnham went up the winding staircase with a slow, weary air. All the pulses of her life seemed to have stopped beating. Yet thought was all the time very busy. She had been brought suddenly down to the level of the commonplace again, with questions to settle which must be thought about. Just how far was she bound to obey her husband's dictation in this matter? For, though courteously phrased, it amounted to nothing less than a dictation. Was she bound in honor to withdraw from this bit of Christian work to which her soul had responded? Must she even give up the hour spent with those Christian women in their place of prayer? Had not the Lord called her to the work? Had he not honored her in it, and were her husband's claims to be put before his? If she had really been the human means of saving a soul this afternoon, was not that return enough to enable her to endure all the disagreements of life and the discomforts arising therefrom? But on the other hand, had the Lord called her to do just this thing, whether her husband approved or not? There were so many things of which he did not approve, yet about which there was no question, which she must do, of course, that perhaps, when it was possible to yield, one ought. She did not know and found that she could not decide just where the ought came in. It was easy to tell what one wanted to do. She would like to go down to her husband that moment and say to him that she was sorry their two ways did not agree, but that in this way which she had chosen, and which had its reward, and which she loved with all her soul, she would certainly walk. Ruth Burnham of yesterday would have done so, but the Ruth Burnham of today had been on the mount with God for a little while, and found, somewhat to her bewilderment, that all her judgments of men and things were softened, and that even such questions as these must be looked at in the light of unselfishness. Meantime, she slowly made the entire changes in her dress which had been called for. This much, at least, she could do. She was glad there was no question in her mind about it. She smiled somewhat curiously over the discovery that her recent experiences had made her look at even so trivial a thing as this in a different light. Yesterday she would have said that she was sorry her dress did not suit him, but it really was the most appropriate garment she had for the hour, and she must ask him to be content with it. Today such a response looked humiliatingly hateful. Had she really been a disagreeable Christian through all these years? At last she came to this conclusion, that no decision in regard to the other matter was possible now. She must put it aside with steady will, until such time as she could be alone to think, and to discover just where that solemn ought belonged. At present there was other work for her, disagreeable work. There was that letter of warning from Marion in her pocket. Must it be shown to her husband? She shrank from this with an aversion of which she was ashamed, though she recognized the reason. 
It was because she did not want to hear these friends of hers criticized, sneered at, perhaps. But what a humiliating thing that she must expect for them such treatment at her husband's hands. On the whole, you will not think it was a pleasant homecoming after her hour of exaltation. Yet I want to tell you that the last thing she did, before joining her husband in the library, was to kneel in her place of prayer, and thank God for the clasp of that rough red hand, and the decision in the voice, as it said to her, I will do it. Above all the turmoil of conflicting anxieties, rose the note of joy for this new soldier added to the ranks of her king. Erskine was in the library in full tide of joy over his father's return. There could be no doubt as to the heartiness of this welcome, and Judge Burnham was enjoying to the full the eager kisses and extravagant delight of his boy. There were no vexed differences of opinion here to mar the pleasure. At least there were none which appeared on the surface. He rose on his wife's entrance, smiled as he gave her a swift survey, and noted that she was dressed in his favorite colors, said thank you in a very expressive tone, and drew an easy chair for her close to his own. Evidently he considered the matter that had come between them already settled. The talk flowed on on different topics during Erskine's presence, he taking a liberal share in it all. From the music room came the hum of voices, interrupted frequently by a sharp dry cough. Judge Burnham glanced anxiously in that direction from time to time, and once interrupted himself to say, It seems to me that Seraph's cough is worse than usual. It is much worse, Ruth said. She has exposed herself cruelly during the past two weeks, and today is quite feverish. Who is with her in the music room? Mr. Satterley, I think no one else. Have you not seen her? Oh, yes, she came to me for a moment. He arose as he spoke, lifted Erskine to the ceiling and down again, then said with a sigh, Well, Popinjay, run away now to Joan. Mama and I must do some talking without your interruption. End of chapter 16 Recording by Tricia G.